all art is political, Johnson. Otherwise, it would just be decoration. Plays are the work of the devil, born from a cesspool of plague, whoredom, thievery, fornication, and heresy. Welcome to Avant Bard, a podcast where two theater nerds explore the highest highs and the lowest lows of works inspired by that upstart crow himself, William Shakespeare. My name is Matthew James Marquez, he, him pronouns. And my name is Megan Charlo, and I use she, her pronouns. Today, we are talking about the film Anonymous. Directed by Disaster King himself, Roland Emmerich. And written by John Orloff. This is our first look into a work that has to do with the life and times of William Shakespeare rather than his works themselves. There are a ton of works that have Shakespeare as a character. Since we don't really know much about the man, he is a great blank slate to tell stories in the Elizabethan to Jacobian era. Released in 2011, Anonymous is a film that proposes that Edward de Vere, the Earl of Oxford... 17th Earl of Oxford. The 17th right. Earl of Oxford. No, you're right. The film proposes that he is the actual author of the plays attributed to William Shakespeare. For those of you not in the know, this is known as the authorship question, a debate on whether or not the man from Stratford-upon-Avon wrote the plays, or if a nobleman or Christopher Marlowe or the queen or the queen wrote the plays instead. It is an absolutely ridiculous premise, and before we go more in depth, I just want to say right off the bat that Oxfordians who are listening to this podcast can leave. No, you should stay. You should stay and just see how wrong you are. I don't want them here, Megan. Oh, they no. don't learn, Megan. They never learn. Maybe one will. Maybe our dulcet tones will finally make them see reason. People who believe that the Earl of Oxford wrote the plays are called Oxfordians. People who believe that Shakespeare wrote the play are, are called... Right. Are yes. called historians and people who know things. <laughs> yes, yes, they are correct. They are called Stratfordians, but I agree with Megan. That, that they are called regular people. <laughs> yes, I wish this wasn't a conversation that existed. I wish that we didn't have to delve into whether or not Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, because he did. There is no evidence to suggest that he didn't, and when people say that there's no evidence to suggest he did, I say to you, his friends wrote things about him, and there are records of him being the writer of this play. The fact that his name is on the play is as good a record as any. At this point, how do we believe that anything from history is written by the author it really was? Yeah. When it comes to things like slave diaries. Yeah. And we say, oh, here's proof that, you know, some slaves got an education. Oxfordians would be the people who would say, well, they were slaves. They couldn't have. Yeah. When it, that's just not true. Yes. So I believe in death of the author. I believe that the works of Shakespeare should be viewed without bringing up the author's background or intentions for writing those plays. Because... All we have are the plays. We don't have those intentions written down, so we don't need to explore them. 
And yet the Oxfordians get their idea from the fact that they read the text and they think that people who know these things must have written it. You must have an in-depth knowledge of falconry, of tennis, in order to write about there being tennis. I don't know, Marquez. You have to have lived in Italy to ever say the word Italy. Well, I mean, he wrote several plays. That say the word Italy. Mm-hmm. True Gentleman of Verona, that plays chock full of Verona. Even though it takes place in Milan, so he probably would have had to live in Paris, too. Some of you might be saying, this is historical fiction. Lighten up. It's just a movie. I love things like Shakespeare in Love. I love Amadeus. I think both of those are great works. They are entirely historically inaccurate. And that's fine. Because they revel in that. Yes, they know that they are being historically inaccurate. Whereas this movie likes to take your preconceived notions and tells you, no, you're wrong. I'm sorry. If you think that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, you're a big dummy. Also, the people who created this film sent it to schools and said it should be used for education. Yeah, so, so they're they... claiming that this is not fiction and this is actually history and is what children should be learning. Which I would just like to say it is not. This is probably my least favorite thing we have watched. There is a chance, I mean, I don't know what we'll cover in the future, but there's a good chance this will be our angriest episode. I'm so mad. And I apologize in advance. We're going to try to... Rain it in. Rain it in so that you can listen. This is not a bad film podcast. We don't take a look at things that we hate just to be haters. We're not going to go and cinema sins through the film. No, but... I am going to kind of cinema sins through the film, and I'm really sorry. But Only the I, historical stuff. Just the historical stuff, and that's just because I was a history major focused on early modern England. We will nitpick the historical accuracies, if only because they purport this thing as fact. With that out of the way, I think we can just get right in it. There isn't going to be an acting corner here. There are some famous people in this movie, but I respect that actors just make money, but also listening to interviews of these actors. When they're like, the more I was in this, the more I thought Shakespeare probably didn't write his plays. I'm like, oh, damn uh, it. I thought I respected you. Do you know Derek Jacoby? I will soon. Because he's in the first scene. That was a cue for you to go into scene one. Okay, well, scene one, we see Derek Jacoby in New York City, and he's riding a cab to a production of the movie that we're seeing. The play he's in is called Anonymous, and he's late, apparently, because he shows up and he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. But he just, like, walks up in the clothes he's wearing outside to the stage, and then the curtain opens, like... Did he just wear his plain clothes without any makeup being put on and just strode into the theater? Or he put it on at home. So he's basically here to give an introduction about the movie we're about to see. He starts off talking about how great Shakespeare is and how he's the soul of the age and he's our Shakespeare. All of our Shakespeare. And then he just decides to take a giant poo-poo and yell at the audience for having dared think of Shakespeare as a great man. Because then he just goes, 
but we haven't a single line of his signature on any personal records. Which also is false. Like, we, we have his signature. And even in interviews in the special features of the film, they talk about how his signature is different. And I'm like, but in the film you just said that he doesn't have a signature written anywhere. But then they go into saying, oh, well, but there's no manuscripts. Okay. I was a theater major who also focused on this period. There were no manuscripts because they wouldn't think to keep records during that time. Because the types of things that his name would be on would be like receipts, which do you keep every receipt that you have? They want evidence. That's what Oxfordians want. They can't just take things at face value. And so they question everything. And see, that's the thing that bothers me. They want so badly for there to be a historical record. But the truth is, as you go farther back in history, it's harder and harder to find records of commoners. And if people were rich and of the court, you'd likely find records, which is what drives me crazy because I said, if it was the Earl of Oxford, then yes, you would have proof because he was an earl. Yeah. You'd have his writing. You'd have people talking about him even more than people talk about Shakespeare. You would have that quote-unquote proof that it was the Earl of Oxford that you don't have since he was a commoner. In addition, the middle class was nascent at this time, which Shakespeare would have belonged to. Because he got money from his plays and he lived a rather rich lifestyle. So he wasn't up there with the people like the Earl of Oxford who would get to keep records and have records kept for him. He was just a guy who was managing his own money. He probably didn't keep any records because he didn't think that he would last a lifetime or pass a lifetime. He was just working consistently to keep plays coming out. If he took time to stop and write a record of every step of playwriting, he would not have been able to write as much as he did, and he wouldn't make as much money. People also like to point out here, and I believe they pointed out in the movie, that he was a grain salesman and like had other jobs in addition to playwriting. My God, have you ever been to New York? Yes, you need multiple jobs. So he was just a guy who was trying to supplement his income with a side business. Poor him. Like, what is your point? I just don't get why they are doing this other than classism. They keep bringing up really classist shit in this prologue. They mentioned that his father was a glove maker because we all know that every actor's parents have been actors and every screenwriter's parents have been screenwriters. No one has ever come from a family who does, you know, different professions with different levels of talent. It's impossible. They also mentioned that he only went to grammar school, which, yeah, because he was not in the court. He was a regular person whose family was doing well enough that they could send him to school and not have him work all day. So actually, the fact that he only went to grammar school is more than most people. And also, grammar school taught you a whole bunch of more intense subjects that they do today. It was at least a high school education. Yes. You came out learning multiple languages. You learned arithmetic. You learned writing. You learned all of this stuff that the movie and Oxfordians say is impossible because he only went to grammar school when... They have no idea what grammar school means in early modern England. And I would just like to say one last thing about this prologue. 
It mentions how Shakespeare didn't have his name on any of the plays until they were published after his death. That is because he didn't own the plays. The theaters owned plays that playwrights wrote for them. The plays were written for specific actors and specific theaters. And then the theaters would keep the play in rotation and bring it out every now and then. That's the end of the prologue, and it's a terrible prologue. And now we go into the film proper, which begins with a dude holding a bunch of manuscripts being chased by guards. Listen, I thought it was a baby at first. You thought the manuscripts were a baby? Yeah, because he was holding them like cradled in his he arms. Was. And I thought it was like some hunchback of Notre Dame shit, and I was like, he ran. Like it was Shakespeare's dad and he was running him to a grammar school. Yeah, that's what I thought it was, something like that. But instead, it's Ben Johnson with a bunch of play manuscripts running to the Globe Theater. And he hides the manuscripts in a box. The guards come and set the Globe on fire. Which is definitely the reason why the Globe burned down, as we all know it's from history. Because Ben Johnson was hiding and they wanted to kill him. Yes. So the globe burned down in 1613. Correct. So I'm under the assumption right now that this is 1613 because there are no title cards. But after we get this scene, Ben Johnson is thrown into prison and interrogated by Robert Cecil. And we are told that Ben Johnson's father is a glass blower. If his father's a glass blower, why would it be held against Shakespeare that his father is a glove maker? Well, Megan, here's the thing. Ben Johnson isn't as good as Shakespeare. See, if somebody wrote plays as good as Shakespeare's, then they couldn't be the son of a glove maker. But because they wrote plays as shitty as Ben Johnson's, these absolute garbo play- Wait, oh, I'm reading here that Ben Johnson was one of the most celebrated playwrights of his time. Oh, oh. <laughs> and he was more popular than Shakespeare during the oh. early modern era. Oh, fuck you. First point that this movie gets, the guards get Ben. They're like, oh, something about him ever being arrested. And he's like, I'm a writer. Of course, I've been bloody well arrested. And I'm like, one point for the film, because that happened a lot back then. Yes. One point. So he gets interrogated by Robert Cecil, a hunchbacked man who's got a very snivelly voice. So they ask Ben about the plays, and little Benny Johnson is just like, oh, what, pastoral, historical pastoral? Like, that line that we talked about prior episodes, that's from Hamlet? So hold on, movie. And then Cecil says, not your plays. Okay, but that's a line from Hamlet. So now is this movie trying to tell me in this scene that Ben Johnson wrote Hamlet? Because if someone said, where's the plays? And I said, oh, to be or not to be. And they said, not your plays. That's an implication that I wrote Hamlet. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what that line is. That's a weird line. It's scene two. It's the first scene of the movie proper. And already they're mixing up what they're trying to tell us. Yeah. So you know how we were in the modern day and then we went back in time to the early modern era? Right. Well, now we're going five years before this scene. So this should be 1608. Correct. Okay. We see the Earl of Oxford, who is a fancy man who immediately makes some disparaging remarks about the common people and how dirty they are as the Earl of Southampton leads him to go see a play at the Rose. The play that they are seeing, which they don't tell us, is 
every man out of his humor by Ben Johnson. No, no, because it's 1608 and every man out of his humor was performed in 1599. So it's 1599? Well, Megan, it could be 1608. It could be. Oh, but then we find out that Shakespeare hasn't written any of his plays yet. It couldn't be 1608. I mean, it couldn't be 1599, but I guess I'll have to say it's 1599 because the only other proof we have is every man out of his humor. And they said five years earlier. So they're saying the globe burned down in 1603 when plays were happening in it. Yes. Great. Wait, speaking of, another small nitpick. Shakespeare's acting in every man out of his humor. He was not in that one. Oh. He was in the one that came before it, Every Man in His Humor, but he wasn't in Every Man Out of His Humor. Listen, we did a deep dive. We had to look up the lines that were being said on the stage, and we did discover what play it was. So all this is not coming from the movie itself, but because we just wanted to see when things happened and nothing makes sense. The main timeline of the movie is 1599. Putting my foot down, I'm saying that's when they say it is, okay. because every man out of his humor is the only thing I have to go by. In the audience of this play, we see a couple of other playwrights of the time, Christopher Kit Marlowe, Thomas Nash, and Thomas Decker. We also know that the Earl of Southampton has the eye of Christopher Marlowe, which is really good because Christopher Marlowe was purported to be queer of some nature. And the Earl of Southampton was... Pretty. Pretty. Like everybody who could possibly like men liked the Earl of Southampton, apparently. Yes, possibly the subject of Shakespeare's sonnets, the early ones, Earl of Southampton. So you know what? I'll give another point. Earl of Southampton's pretty, and guys like him. So Shakespeare gets yelled at backstage for drinking during a performance, which I really don't see as being like that bad during this time period. There was a different level of professionalism. Plays weren't a dress up and go out for the night no. type thing. People were standing, drinking, eating, watching shows, and laughing uproariously, yeah. talking through it. It was a completely different set of rules. Yes. So I think it's kind of weird that there's this like level of professionalism. I think it's just so that the movie can show uh, Shakespeare gets drunk while he's performing. He's such a common drunkard. Yes. I just need to mention that if the Earl of Oxford is supposed to be who wrote Shakespeare and our main character, they make him into a huge dick. Like the first seconds that we see him, I don't want him to write the plays because he's a giant, massive prick. It's he, completely a class thing. I don't know who to root for because the movie's telling me that A, the Earl of Oxford is a dick, and B, that Shakespeare is a dick. I guess Ben Johnson is the only good person we've met so far. So far. Benny gets arrested. This actually happened a lot of the times Ben Johnson's plays were a little too targeted at noblemen that he got arrested several times during his life. As he mentioned in the first bit of the first scene. Yes, so, so this cool. is all accurate to Ben Johnson as a person. I will give the movie kudos for that. But I already gave them a point for him getting arrested, so I'm not giving them another point. So we cut to our next scene, and the Earl of Oxford is talking with the Earl of Southampton and the Earl of Essex about plays, basically, while the Earls are playing tennis and Oxford is being referee. Point of order, <laughs> Earl of Essex and Earl of Southampton, super gay in this film. They're boning. Oh, 
Really, Megan? Why not? Okay, that's fine. So Earl of Oxford mentions how he noticed that people listening to the plays reacted to them, which is a huge genius revelation that the power of art can move people to action. What a giant discovery that nobody has ever thought of before, because this guy is so smart. Such a genius. And the Earl of Essex does pull a Lannister and just says, words aren't power. Power is power, which I also agree with, too. They both are powerful tools to use. So then it's brought up that William Cecil, who's Robert Cecil's father, the guy who we met at the beginning, wants King James on the throne. King James of Scotland. King Mm -hmm. James of Scotland. And Essex and Southampton don't want this. What they want to do is have Essex on the throne because apparently he's the bastard son of the queen. Like I said, if he can be the bastard son of the queen, he and Southampton can be doing it and smooching between tennis games. Yeah, Megan, is this what you're going to run with the whole time? It'll keep me from screaming. Okay, that's fine. The Earl of Oxford does warn them that they shouldn't be doing this. And so he says maybe he has a different plan in order to get the queen to choose someone else. Which, why? How? Well, we cut to our next scene where there's a party going on for Queen Elizabeth. Who is old and shows a lot of booby. Yeah, she does show a lot of booby. I mean, that's accurate. It's fair. But I'm just like, oh, lady booby, hi. And so what she receives as a gift is a bunch of players showing up. Okay, how is this going to make her choose Essex? Because she remembers the first time she saw this play. Well, hold on. We should tell them what play this is. The players come out and they're a bunch of fairies. And then there's a fairy queen. And then there's a donkey. So this is Midsummer. They're saying that this, in the year of our Lord, 1599, is Midsummer. But as Marquez said, the queen remembers the first time she saw it, which leads us to a flashback that says... 40 years ago. So they're saying that Midsummer Night's Dream was written in 1559. When Oxford was nine years old. So they're saying that a nine-year-old nobleman could write Midsummer Night's Dream, but a grown-ass William Shakespeare who went to grammar school and could be a fucking writer because Ben Johnson was a fucking writer, couldn't? I would just like to say all of this would be okay if it weren't for the fact that they wanted schools to see this movie to learn history. I'm so angry right now. Oxford, as a nine-year-old child, is also playing Puck because, as we know, the 17th Earl of Oxford was an actor as a child. In 1559, Queen Elizabeth's favorite troop was the Earl of Leicester's men, and there's no fucking way that the Earl of Oxford would be part of that because he actually had his own troop of actors at a later date. Oh, because what? Yes, he did write his own plays. Megan? Yeah? I'd like to remind you that the premise of this film is that this is a play being performed in front of the audience, right? I don't know. Honestly, when I see the prologue, I think that it's just him doing a lecture like the worst TED talk I've ever heard of. So this is supposed to be a play. Great. And so in this play, imagine you're in this audience. Are they holding up title cards saying (laughs) 40 years earlier? So this play starts off with Ben Johnson running through the rain, and then it goes back in time 
five years and then starts telling a different story. And then it goes back in time 40 additional years and tells a third story. And Megan, spoilers for later in this movie, we go to a different time period later. His dad in this scene is not happy with him doing theater. Earl of Oxford is not happy with the baby Edward DeVere doing plays because it's something that's just not done. Because it's not like, you know, the court liked his writing in real history and we have proof of that. No, but he has to be a sheltered, tortured artist who can't get his work out, Megan. In 1599, they're saying the Earl of Oxford, Edward de Vere, sent a group of players to the Queen as a huge surprise thing that hasn't happened in so long. And they're like, no, we haven't had plays here for years. She can't see theater because we won't allow it. And Southampton and Essex are like, no, let it happen. And then they do. There's proof that Edward de Vere was doing court performances with his troupe for the Queen in 1583 and yes the movie has it right that he is not allowed in the court he's banished but he still sent players and this had been happening for over a decade at this point so the film once again is just making shit up to try to make a better story which would normally be fine until again you say that this is the facts so then we cut back to 40 years in the future so we're at 1599 1599 And Ben Johnson is being released from prison. Yeah, we saw him go to prison just now. He's out now. He got bailed out. So he's taken to the Earl of Oxford's mansion. And he walks up. At first, he doesn't know who rescued him from the prison. But then he sees it's the Earl of Oxford. And the Earl of Oxford is standing there holding a red and white colored flower. And he says, the Tudor rose and it's supposed to be a symbol of peace but here's the thing it is a symbol it's not a flower he is holding a flower and he says it's the tudor rose but that's not how flowers work you can't just have a white rose on top of a red rose and even if you could it wasn't real it was just supposed to represent Two houses coming together in one kingdom. And we still, to this day, with all the genetic modification that we have of flowers, do not have a flower that is perfectly white on the inside and perfectly red on the outside. That would be fine if we didn't see it growing from a bush and we could say maybe it was painted, but no. He's saying that this is a flower he just picked off a bush. And this is supposed to be a realistic portrayal of what went down. That is what they purported to us. And yet he's picking up fake flowers that don't exist i don't know megan this is the first part of the movie that actually started to break me as a human welcome to my life we also find out in this moment that the reason why ben johnson was released is that the earl of oxford is married to william cecil's daughter so he does have some say in the court regardless of whether or not he's banished And he wants to talk to Ben about plays. And he's like, oh, you know, you were thing because your thing was political. And he was like, my play wasn't political. And that's when we get the all art is political, which Which, is a good line. Yes, point to the movie. I like that line. He follows it up with another line, which we didn't quote in the beginning, which I also love, which is all artists have something to say. Otherwise, they'd make shoes. And you're not a cobbler, are you, Johnson? 
and I laugh, but also fuck you. Yeah. Because I know that a cobbler is close to a glove maker, and I know what you're fucking doing. The Earl of Oxford's reputation means that he can't write plays. Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford, was well known in his time for being a court poet and playwright. He wrote poems and plays for the court that the court enjoyed, whether he was part of the court or not. He wasn't allowed to step foot in the building, but they sure as hell liked when he sent them things that he wrote. But Megan, the plays and poems are sacrilegious and against God. No. As oh. the movie mentions, Queen Elizabeth loved the theater. She loved poetry. She loved all of this. And he knew it, and he was fine at it, and they all liked it. So then why does the Earl of Oxford want Ben Jonson to release his plays as though they were under Ben Jonson's name? Because Oxfordians are idiots, and I can't live like this anymore. Hey, Megan, can I tell you something, though? Yeah. Earl of Oxford? Yeah. He has a servant. Oh, thank God. His name's Francesco. Francesco, my sweet, sweet man. And he's got a kickin' stash. And beard combo. I just want to paint it. Yeah, and he's a cool guy. He just, like... Stands there, and I'm happy. And he, like, hands people off money in the way he hands off money. Good secondary acting. I wish that this movie was just about him. Ooh, Francesco instead of Anonymous. What if Francesco wrote Shakespeare's I'd accept that more. What, that, like, this servant guy wrote them in, like, secret and didn't want, like... Or to get out that... The servant of a court poet and playwright was a better poet and playwright than his master, so he kept it a secret. That's a much better story. Jesus Christ, get on my fucking level, Oxfordians. Yeah, I'm a Francescian. I think Francesco from Anonymous wrote the plays. (laughs) So we go back to the court, and we're told by William Cecil... That, oh, the queen loves plays so much that I've been keeping them from her. And like I said, that's a lie. She loved plays, true. They were not kept from her. She kept watching plays. And so he is like, oh, I have to make sure my friend James of Scotland gets the crown. We have to get rid of the Earl of Essex. And so he sends him off to the Irish rebellions that were happening off to the west. That's his plan. And Queen Elizabeth I doesn't want to do it, but she does it, which is really riveting. Oh, wait, it's a flashback again. Well, man, what were you flashing back? We're flashing back 40 years. Oh, they don't tell us this time. Oh. We just know because Robert Cecil's a child now. Robert Cecil, the son of William Cecil. And the Earl of Oxford is coming to live with the Cecils because his dad died. And this is accurate. His father died. He was too young. So he became a ward of the queen and lived with the Cecils. And he comes in and he goes, I love poetry. And they go, poetry isn't allowed. And I go, okay. I don't care because I know that you end up making poetry for the court in reality. And this trying to tell me that you loved poetry so much, but it wasn't allowed. And I'm not buying this bullshit. Also, he is playing chess with Robert Cecil while he's fencing with his master in this flashback and... The Earl of Oxford knocks over the chess set and then just snidely tells Robert Cecil, you were going to lose anyway. And he's just a massive dick back here, too. He never wasn't a massive dick. And so what does Robert Cecil do? Because 
he was insulted by this stranger in his house. He goes, okay, you insulted my son. You're being super rude in my house. I told you no poetry, but I know that you're writing poetry. So he has someone spill ink over the poems and destroy them. And in retaliation, obviously, the Earl of Oxford gets so mad and he confronts William Cecil and he says, why is this man that I'm bringing before you no. putting... I'm sorry, Marquez, that's not what happens. I'm sorry. What? What happens is he goes, what? Ink on my stuff. And then he hears a rustle behind a curtain and goes, what? A rat. Dead for a duck at dead. Except he doesn't say those things. Or does he? I can't tell. Because he does stab and kill a man through a curtain. Because, of course, to have written Hamlet, you have to have murdered a man through a curtain. But why would he do that? Because he's a hot-headed little shit, and apparently being a hot-headed nobleman is better than being not noble. But he killed a man. I would rather Shakespeare be a murderer than just a guy. Because I'm an Oxfordian classist piece of shit. So then we jump back to 1599, and Ben is running into the mermaid, where all the writers go and drink and talk. They're all like, let's do a thing. And he's like, no, sorry, guys. I have to really hurry. I have this big deadline coming up. I really need to finish Eastward Ho, which wasn't finished until 1604. Turns out he really didn't have to hurry to finish it. No, it's just like, oh, sorry, honey, I can't. I have a headache. He's also kind of on the fence about doing this thing for the Earl of Oxford. So obviously he tells Shakespeare about it for reasons. And Shakespeare, this drunk idiot, is like, oh, money? How much money? Yeah, I'll put my name on the place for you. And then we cut back to 1599, the court of England. This is where Essex is sent to Ireland. Ireland. They're like, we did it. And Cecil is like, I want my son Robert on the Privy Council. And we're like, oh, is this going to be hard? And the queen's like, of course. And I'm like, this is so boring. There's no conflict here. They bring up Edward to fear. Yes. And the queen goes... Is Edward happy with your daughter? And here's the thing. One, I don't give a fuck. Two, it's 1599. Let me tell you something about real life history. IRL history and Cecil and Edward de Vere separated in 1576. Oh. Not only that, Anne Cecil fucking died in 1588. <laughs> so... She's been gone for 11 years. She's been buried for 11 years. At this point, actually, he would have been married to Elizabeth Trentham, who was, as history says, a smart, independent woman who knew a bunch about business and law and seems like a badass. Yeah, where's her movie? He can't- Wait, wait, wait. Megan? Yeah. Maybe Elizabeth Trentham wrote the plays of William Shakespeare. I'd accept that more than I would accept Edward de Vere. Because that would be a more interesting story because it would be a woman who nobody expected to write these plays at the time. Someone who had time on her hands being just the wife of the Earl of Oxford. I'm a Trent... Trentamian. Uh, yeah, I'm a Trentamian now. So I like to imagine that in this scene, the queen is going... Is Edward happy now that your daughter's been dead for 11 years? Uh, and William just goes, yes. That's the end of that scene. So then we go back in time to young Earl of Oxford again. Yes. So we are again in, whoops, they never told us what time this is. Nope, so they did not. I can't tell you. It's murder time. The murder years. The murder years. In my murder days when I was green. <laughs> yes. So yeah, he's acting like such a fucking tortured artist. 
Like, I'm stifled by this household. I have money, and I have food to eat, and I don't have the plague. Well, the thing is, he did just kill a man, so he should be executed. Yes. So, like, that's a problem. Well, Megan. Yeah. He's rich. Oh, never mind. Yeah, it's okay. He just has to make a deal with William Cecil to marry his daughter in order to not be arrested for killing a man. Okay. Sorry about that guy, though. Yeah, does his, does he have a family? Does his family know? Who was that guy? I want a movie about that guy. Maybe he was Shakespeare. Curtain I'm a curtain guy. I'm curtain a curtain guy. Guy-ian. A curtain guy-ian. <laughs> I believe that the guy behind the curtain wrote the works of William Shakespeare. It's okay. We're going back to the future of 1599. And Ben Jonson has put up the play that the Earl of Oxford gave him, but he chose to make the author anonymous. <laughs> That's the name of the movie. So the first play of quote unquote William Shakespeare ever, as we all know, was Henry V, according to this film. Yes. Cool. And that was done in um Not the Globe. And Henry IV parts one and two didn't happen. Nope. Okay. And Marlowe says that no one bests him in historical drama, but according to history, Richard II was published two years ago. So Megan. Yeah. Falstaff is mentioned as being dead in Henry V. Mm-hmm. I know you mentioned Henry IV, parts one and part two, mm-hmm. but literally he couldn't be a character who died in Henry V. Right. Because he wasn't popular yet because of Henry IV, parts one and two. Henry V can't have come first. No. no it can't have been performed first. It couldn't have been written first. For one, that's just not chronological. Two, the prologue, which is given by famed Shakespearean actor Mark Rylance, who I have to look up whether or not he's an anti-Stratfordian, because I refused to look it up during the movie because I didn't want my viewpoint of Mark Rylance ruined. But the thing about the prologue of Henry V, Megan, is it mentions a wooden O, which is be the theater that it was performed in, and it mentions playhouses and how they work and as far as we know the first time that edward devere saw a play in a common theater was at the beginning of this movie when he saw every man out of his humor so he just wrote this in like one week and sent it off and said do do this one first listen none of this makes sense it's absolutely wild buck wild that this is the first play performed and the crowd is eating this shit up they're like playwright give us the playwright they love it they love it they want to kiss him they want to cheer for him and shakespeare goes oh and he runs backstage and he dips his finger in an inkwell and goes me i'm shakespeare and everyone goes what dumb boy billy shakes and then he stammers and tries to say a thank you speech and i'm so dumb i cannot talk and that's bad and then they go he can't have written that he's an actor ben johnson was literally a fucking actor yeah i know all of these people were actors and playwrights yeah man i know i know You know what else is great? What? That the play definitely ended after the Battle of Agincourt and definitely not after a scene where Henry V meets his new French wife and they have hilarious conversations about how she doesn't speak English, which the Earl of Oxford definitely wrote that funny bit. 
and not just the profound bits. That's true. He did like his poo-poo penis humor. Yes, he loved it because he was an erudite man, Ryan. He knew that he could change the world with poo-poo pee-pee jokes. Well, the next scene, we get Ben Johnson confronting the Earl of Oxford about the fact that William Shakespeare took credit for his work that was supposed to be Ben Johnson's name on it. But like Ben didn't want it. So like it's up for grabs. Yeah. And Ben Johnson basically tells him your voice is completely different than mine. They wouldn't have believed it. And then the Earl of Oxford yells at Ben Johnson that he has no voice. Which, as we said, he He was super popular. Yes. And he had a very specific voice. He was arrested a lot for it. Yes. Ben Johnson promises that he will keep it a secret still, but that they're just going to have to keep having Will Shakespeare be the writer of the plays. So Edward DeVere goes to his bookshelf and grabs all these plays to give to him to do next. The first of which, obviously in 1599, is Macbeth. Macbeth? The Scottish play? That was not for the Scottish king, of course. There is a section of Macbeth which mentions how Banquo's children will become the king's of scotland and eventually the king of england and scotland and wales damn that sounds a lot like queen elizabeth no megan what no because queen elizabeth isn't scottish what who is james the first because this play was clearly written for james because it also deals with The fact that King James was famously afraid of people in his court lying to him. And Macbeth is somebody who lies to and kills the king. And a third fact about it is that it has witches in it. Which James I literally wrote the book about witches. So all of this would be targeted towards James I and not Elizabeth. But apparently the Earl of Oxford wrote it a while ago. You know, he's just Nostradamus. I don't know what to tell you. Did you know Nostradamus didn't actually exist? It was actually Edward de Vere, the oh, 17th. Well, actually, Oxford. I'm um, I'm a Nostradamian. I think that Nostradamus wrote the works of William Shakespeare. Ben Johnson looks around the room where we see all this proof that Edward de Vere was actually Shakespeare. Oh, but none of it survived. Right, of course, none of this survived. It's just set dressing because set dressing is the proof of the past. Like a piece of paper where he's coming up with the name for the play Twelfth Night. And it's crossed out and replaced with what you will. And then crossed out and says Twelfth Night. As though it was decided that that was the play's name and it wasn't just when it was first performed, which was on the Twelfth Night of Christmas. That's when it was performed and that's why that's the play's name. It wasn't a choice that the author made. They're trying to make a cutesy little joke, but I'm like, you are purporting this as fact. You cannot do this to me. And like I said, there's a falcon because falcons happen in the play. Yes, yes, yes. And there's astronomy stuff because astronomy happens in the play. These are not things you could have just heard about on the streets. And he hands him Romeo and Juliet. And then he says, well, this play's written entirely in verse, in iambic pentameter. And Ben Johnson goes, huh, is that possible? 
It, one, yeah, it's possible. Two, um, no, it's not. It's not written I, all in iambic pentameter. You're claiming he wrote it and he doesn't even know what iambic pentameter is? Because to say it was all iambic pentameter means you don't know what iambic pentameter is, bud. So yeah, this is a thing that drives me crazy, which happens a lot, where people claim that they know everything about Shakespeare, but don't know basic terminology of Shakespeare's time and his works. If you open up Romeo and Juliet and flip to five random pages, more likely than not, you will fall upon at least one thing that is not an iambic pentameter. They didn't do any research for this film. Yes. And I hate them. So Ben leaves, and Anne, who again is dead, comes in and is like, We need a dowry for our daughter. I hate plays. And Oxford goes, We don't have any money. And she goes, Oh, our daughter, ugh. And he goes, we don't have any money. And I go, ugh, this movie, I'm bored. He's like, oh, we'll give her basically like a fucking pear tree. And she's like, ah, father. And she runs off and Anne's like, you're playing the flute while Rome is burning. And instead of taking his wife's concern seriously, he well actually's her and says, Nero played the fiddle while Rome burned. It's like, Read the fucking room, you piece of human garbage. And she's like, you promise to never write again. Which I also find bullshit. Because one, she is dead at this point. Yes. Two, there's a theory that's out there that she might have actually written poetry herself. And it didn't happen until the year that she died. But still, there's a chance that she wrote poetry about her dead son. Who also never mentioned in this film. Why not? That's another thing you can mention about this poor, sad man who must be Shakespeare. He had a son die. Sons die in Shakespeare's work. The only way you could write about that by Oxfordian logic is having a dead son. Oh, oh Megan, Megan, actually, um, William Shakespeare's son uh, did famously die. So that one actually does. Oh, what? Oh, that one actually does apply to Shakespeare. What? Shakespeare actually had things happen to yes, him? Yes, yes, he did have He a wasn't life. just a drunkard who did nothing? No, he was not just a drunkard who did nothing. Oh, he was an actual person he had with a experience. Family. Yeah. In retaliation to his wife's accusations, Oxford just goes into this whole long speech about how he gets the voices in his head and he just needs to get them out by writing them down. Sounds like your boy needs a therapist and a marriage counselor. But it just buys into this concept that the tortured artist is the most prolific and greatest artist of all time. That you need to suffer for your art in order for it to be great. That's the concept that they are purporting here. It's also another bullshit thing. Especially because in these times, being a commoner, you suffered a lot more than the rich people did, typically. So you want to be a suffering, starving artist? Kind of have to not be rich. In the next scene, Billy shakes... Our drunkard commoner Billy gets Romeo and Juliet and is like, oh, yeah, this is hot. I'm going to get all the ladies. I'm going to be Romeo. And Ben's like, you can't be Romeo. You can't do that. You don't have time to act. You're a writer. And we literally just talked about this to the screen, buddy. Then as we're like hearing this stuff, we flash back again to Mm -hmm. the murder years. And it's implied that Romeo and Juliet was written because... Obviously, Edward de Vere went to a ball that the queen was at, and he was like, wow, she's hot, let's perform a sonnet together. 
Because obviously, someone that you're the ward of is the same as your rivals. And so that means he had the experience of Romeo and Juliet, so that's how he was able to write it. So he is talking to her about stuff. She's like, so you lived in Italy for multiple years because the Oxfordians say that's required of being Shakespeare. And he goes, yes, uh, it was great. And she's like, what did you like there? And he's like, the women, because they'll tell you when they want to fuck. And then she's like, Ugh, and they start having sex. Yeah, because she just goes, I could do what I want. I could have sex with you. My ward. And I go, God, I'm... Ugh. So she gets pissed because he's like, send me to Italy or wherever. I want to, no, send me somewhere. I want to fight France. I don't know who they were fighting. I wasn't paying attention because he's just trying to have sex with the queen, even though he just did. And she's like, how dare you? You're just having sex with me, so I'll send you to war. And she storms off. And then he starts saying the lines to O Mistress Mine from from Twelfth Twelfth Night, which was published or written probably around like 1602. But the lyrics are different. So here's my question. Are they saying the Twelfth Night was also already written and he is doing like a parody of it? Or are they saying that this is extempore from his mother's wit and he says it and then goes, oh shit, that's good. I should put that in a play next week. Megan, I think it's implied by this film that he had just these plays in his back pocket the whole time. So here's the thing, because this is obviously decades earlier, right? It's gotta be. Yes, it's gotta be when he was like, 1819. So, like, what the fuck has he been writing for the past few decades? Or did he just peak when he was 19 and stop? But, you know, Shakespeare can't have written them as an adult. Oh, Megan, he wrote the um, problem plays during his later years. Oh, no. The ones that we don't see in the movie, those are the plays he wrote later. But we can't show them because... uh, They're bad, and then we wouldn't want to say that he wrote these things. Because rich people can only write good things. Yes. So then after they make up and start making out again... We cut to the writers that we previously mentioned, Nash, Marlowe, and Decker. It's, so it's it's fifteen ninety nine. Yes, we're back in fifteen ninety nine. Okay. At the Mermaid, they're mentioning how Romeo and Juliet is going to now run for a fortnight. It was already published two years ago, but okay. Written, not published. No, published. What? Where? In a quarto? Yeah. It's oh. not just assumed to have been written; it was published, published. already. Fuck this. They also complained about it being written in iambic pentameter, and they talk about how I could write a play in iambic pentameter if I want to. When they did, they they did the thing that they are saying that they didn't do. Man, I'm too dumb to do that in the plays I totally did, did. that in, but it's okay because the writers and people for this movie didn't do any fucking research. I'm going to take this moment right now to apologize. I try not to swear on this podcast. Just want to apologize for just how many times I've said the fuck word this episode because I can't not. So then they say, it's a fluke. It'll never happen again. Cue laugh track from the audience. (laughs) Cue montage of plays. Twelfth Night not performed on Twelfth Night. Julius Caesar. Macbeth, which was, you know, not performed in this theater and again was performed not during queen elizabeth's time and all of these are like at the rose which mm-hmm. like also hamlet it was after 1600 so it was not at the rose yep and then it's like william shakespeare william shakespeare william shakespeare and we're like yeah that's actually the guy who wrote it 
And then they cut to a performance of Hamlet because all these plays have passed. They're showing a lot of plays really rapid fire for it to still be probably 1599. So it's probably not still that year. But it's like no later than 1600. He's performing Hamlet for an audience, as we said, and also for the court. Like Polonius dies and they're like, yeah, kill Cecil. But they're saying that like during his first scene... So throughout, every time they show Polonius, they're like, remember, audience, that's Cecil. And then they kill him in Dead for a Duck at Dead. Then they cut to the to be or not to be. That happens like scenes before Dead for a Duck at. Because they need to show that his works are emotionally affecting the people. Because then it starts raining in the middle of Hamlet's monologue. And it's so sad. And I just want to cry because this movie's so bad. But also they like cut to be or not to be like right before some of the most well-known lines in it so i'm like this is a terrible cut and then he like crowd surfs and shit all of the bits that are good in shakespeare plays are in the middle of things but the movie doesn't want to show us the end of things or the beginning of things it just wants to show us the important things and so it just pretends that plays end after the famous things happen which is wild the next scene, we see Kit Marlowe selling out Shakespeare. For the William Cecil parody. And he's like, you should tell William Cecil that he was killed in a play. And then they were like, wait, he killed William Cecil? And he's like, oh, well, someone who was obviously looked like him. I just want to bring up a point. It will come up later. But Marlowe is dead. He, he died in uh, 1593. He died before the events of this movie supposedly happened. Well, the 1599 parts. So they're talking to a ghost in this scene. They should be scared. William Cecil finds out and he is mad. But not mad enough to to arrest. No. And Robert Cecil just goes, aren't you going to arrest them? And he says, no. Okay, that didn't work, Marlo. And then the Cecils are like, we have to get James on the throne. Elizabeth's got to be not on the throne and James has to be on the throne. We need to kill the Earl of Oxford and Essex and Southampton. Just sending them away wasn't enough. Also, we got to kill that Oxford guy. Let's just kill everyone she likes. Why do they have to kill the Earl of Oxford? Well, cut back to the murder days. And Elizabeth loves Edward de Vere. She is in love with him, and she is pregnant with his child. (gasps) They're like, okay, well, you're the queen, and you're not married, and you're pregnant, so, you know, you gotta do that thing where you go away for nine months, and then you have your baby in secret, and then we'll get rid of it. And then Edward's like, where is she? Why would she leave without telling me? And Cecil's just like, "Mm." William tells Edward, you're not the first person to get Elizabeth pregnant. I just feel weird about this scene because he's married to Anne Cecil at this point and he's just like, hey, father-in-law, where's my fuck queen? See, I think the thing is that William Cecil really doesn't give a shit about people and he only really gives a shit about power. We'll go back to 1599 where the writers continue to complain about Shakespeare. Marlowe's dead. Marlowe is dead. Yeah. And yet he complains to Ben Johnson and goes to him and says, Shakespeare couldn't have written those works. He's illiterate. Don't you know? He's not one of us. Not a writer. He only went to grammar school where they teach writing. I think someone else wrote it because, again, he only went to grammar school where you get a decent education. 
So he suspects someone else wrote the plays besides Shakespeare, and he's going to get Shakespeare to tell him by extorting him. Hey, did you know that Christopher Marlowe's dad was a shoemaker? Oh, really? I thought he was a poet. No. Well, fuck me, I guess. I'm Christopher Marlowe's dad, Dean. He wrote the plays. So then we cut to Ireland, where Southampton and Essex are discussing battle plans, and a very, very suspicious-looking guy holding wine walks into the room and then pulls a gun on them. But the thing is, guns are bad and slow and bad ways to murder people. And Southampton is like, no, not my lover, and Saves Essex. And that's that scene. These are pretty rapid-fire scenes. Scene 20. The last scene with him, we know that Marlowe said he was going to approach Shakespeare. And now Marlowe's dead body is discovered in an alleyway. His dead, super dead, seven years dead body finally appears. It's been seven years. Marlowe's finally dead. He definitely saw Hamlet, though. So then we go to the assassination attempt on Oxford. Great. They pay his fencing master in order to attack him. Well, that's really dumb of him because he should know vital points at that point he goes for his fucking leg and then francesco hears the fighting going on and runs to rescue his master go francesco go no it's fine oxford's got it he killed the guy oh okay never mind francesco was of no help whatsoever no but they just wanted to show us his beautiful face again so i'm okay with it which is fair also, he was practicing his fencing in the middle of his fucking hedge maze, which is A, impractical, and B, just egotistical and elitist as fuck. I mean, I'd probably do that if I was rich. <sighs> Megan, What? Fine. I mean, it sounds fun. It's like a super challenge. Okay. Also, I could be like, you can't find me. So in the next scene, we get bear baiting. Shakespeare is betting on it, and Ben Johnson comes to confront him about Marlowe being dead. But first, Shakespeare's like, oh, I need money because I'm going to build a theater because it's 1599 and the Globe was finished building in like 1600. And we know that in 1598, the theater was taken down and the wood was taken to go to help build the Globe. So the Globe had already been under construction kind of for a year. So all of this is just lies. Yes. Ben Johnson comes in and he's angry. Ben Johnson confronts Shakespeare and Shakespeare denies everything. Is this movie purporting that Shakespeare had Christopher Marlowe killed? 1,000% is what they're saying. So he's a murderer too. Oh, so he could write about murder. After they yell at each other for a bit, Shakespeare decides to follow Ben Johnson in order to find out who his patron is. And he wears a silly little mask to disguise himself as he sees Ben Johnson get off the boat. I don't know. To me, that sounds like some life experience you could write about in plays. Oh. And so then finally, we have the confrontation between William Shakespeare and the Earl of Oxford. They meet at last. They're going to have a huge blowout fight about the authorship. Except they don't. Damn it. And Shakespeare just says, give me more money or I'll tell them that you wrote them. And he's like, all right, here's my checkbook. Okay, but I did math for this. So he says, I want 400 pounds a year. And in today's money... That is 127,411 pounds and 55 pence. I don't know why I did this math. I was just like, is that a lot of money? And yeah, I'd, I'd like that much money. So then we go back in time again. Oh. To murder years. Murder years. All right. So we find out from William Cecil speaking to Oxford that he had sex with another woman besides Elizabeth and his wife 
And well, because Elizabeth left and he's pissed. And how else is he going to get vengeance? The reason why they put this in is because they decided that they wanted to be historically accurate just this once. <laughs> Her name was Bessie Vavasour. Okay, so they say Bessie and I went, oh shit. Okay, so that is Elizabeth Vavasour. Who is she? Elizabeth Vavasour was Queen Elizabeth's maid of honor for one year from 1580 to 1581. So this means that the murder years were 1580. We have a date! So this is like 19 years before the current events of where we're supposed to be at. Yes. Okay. So this is 19 years ago. All this stuff is happening. It's 1580. The queen did get pissed that her maid of honor was sleeping with people that were in the court. And so she was like, you're out. You're not Mm -hmm. my maid of honor anymore. And so this is actually fairly accurate. So that's nice. Though she didn't kick her out from being maid of honor for jealousy reasons, as far as we know. Also, I don't think they said that she was the queen's maid of honor. So... William Cecil tells Oxford that he doesn't have to go to jail if he follows rules that he and Elizabeth set, which include being expelled from court. Which happened. And giving Anne a child. To which Oxford's response is, I want to know the name of my child. The child he's talking about is his child with Elizabeth. And it turns out that his child is the Earl of Southampton. That pretty boy we were talking about earlier. Wait, so the sonnets are possibly written about the Earl of Southampton. Yes. The Earl of Southampton was actually one of Shakespeare's patrons. Yes, correct. And now we're saying that that is actually the child of Shakespeare, the of the real Shakespeare. Yes. So he was writing Man, You're So Hot poems about his son who was giving him money? Well, Megan, obviously the Oxfordians don't think that. You're right. The they fair don't youth think <laughs> is the Earl of Southampton. Are you sure? I don't know, Megan. I hope not. So we cut back to 1599 slash 1600 slash 1601, wherever we are. And William Cecil is dead. Hey, Marquez. When did William Cecil really die, Megan? 1598. So before every man out of his humor? Yep. Before Hamlet? Yeah. Good. I like this. I like being here. I like doing this. So William Cecil is now dead in the movie. And the queen wants to bring the Earl of Essex back now that William's not alive. And Robert Cecil says that Essex promised Ireland to Spain. If they help him take the throne throne. from the queen. (gasps) But he says it's all hearsay. But he's just trying to plant the seeds in order to get the queen to turn against Essex. And a point of the movie that I actually do like is that in her frustration, the queen does call Robert Cecil William and he has to correct her which is a thing that I always love in fiction. The next scene is very short. It's just that the Earls of Essex and Southampton get a letter that's like, you're bad, bad job, Earls, from the Queen. The next we get a scene in The Mermaid where Shakespeare is showing off his new coat of arms in which he cannot read the family motto because he's illiterate. And then Ben Johnson takes this opportunity to point this out to everyone in the bar. But if he went to grammar school, he would be able to not only read, but he would also be able to read Latin. I know, Megan. Okay. And Ben Johnson puts a parchment and quill in Shakespeare's hands and says, write an eye, write anything. And Shakespeare looks down and says, but there's no ink and walks away, which is a cool move. But also it's just being like, see, he really couldn't write even an I. But he is witty enough to know there's no ink and you can't write without ink. 
So then we go to the next scene. We're back at court in 1599-1600, whatever year we're in. Well, according to the death of William Cecil, it's actually 1598. So Essex bursts into the queen's quarters. So she's like half naked. How embarrassing. And she's flustered. Robert Cecil's orchestrating. He came in armed. You can't trust him. You can't give him the throne. And so Robert Cecil's just plotting because he wants to maintain power. But it's not interesting. No, it's pretty He's just boring. like, see, he had a weapon and you were nudie. And she's like, oh, I'm old. And that's it. See, here's the thing. This has nothing to do with the authorship question. No, this is just added drama. Yes. We cut to the next scene where Oxford is talking to Essex and Southampton about how to handle that situation and tells them not to go to her or say anything in that. Well, because they're like, okay, so we'll just go as we are with all our weapons and our guards and shit. And he says, don't do that. I've got a plan. I'm going to write a story about a mean, mean hunchback, which was written about seven years ago. He plans to use Venus and Adonis, a narrative poem that Shakespeare wrote in order to get the queen to recognize that she wants to see the Earl of Oxford by bringing up their past love. But also Venus and Adonis was dedicated to the Earl of Southampton. He's writing a poem about how he fucked his mom and dedicating to him, but it's for Elizabeth. This is early modern How I Met Your Mother. Oh. Also, Venus and Adonis was written in 1593. Oh, so way before any of this happened. Yeah. That's an actual huge plot hole. Yeah. Because William Cecil died in 1598 and Venus and Adonis was written and published in 1593. Yeah. Cool. Great. Yep. It's all garbage. Yep. In the next scene, Robert Cecil is talking to Elizabeth and she's like, I want to see Edward. I know this plays about our hot, hot love, even though it says it's about our son. So who is our son? And he's like, Southampton. Yeah, it's the one that this poem's written to. And she's like, call Edward. I want to talk to him about our hot, hot love and our son, Southampton. So Ben Johnson goes to the Globe and speaks with Richard Burbage and gives him a play. And Burbage says, no Ben Johnson plays at the Globe because Shakespeare blacklisted you, basically. Okay, but like Shakespeare and Ben Johnson were both part of the Lord Chamberlain's men. So their plays would all be taking part in the same theaters. So they're definitely Ben Johnson plays at the Globe. Yes. Also, Richard III is the first play at the Globe is what this is implying. So they're like still kind of building it yeah. while they're rehearsing. That's basically supposed to be like the big opening of the theater. That is absolutely false. I know. Nothing is real, Megan. Nothing is but what is not. So Ben Johnson's pissed that, of course, none of his plays will ever be at the Globe because that's a fact. Yep. And so he goes and is like, he's writing a thing about Robert Cecil. Oh, I'm telling on him. Yep, he tells the tower about the play. And then Cecil is like, don't stop the play. Keep the play going. I have a plot. (laughs) Oh, I like that Robert Cecil voice, Megan. Thanks. The next scene, we see the opening of Richard III, and the house is packed. Except it's not. I mean, it's busy, but they're like, it's full. We're turning people away for blocks, but we're not letting anyone come in. But then Ben just walks right in. Yeah, so that doesn't make any sense. Ben would have already had to be there. They contradict what they just said. And Francesco is in the audience trying to gather mob psychology. It's so good. I'd watch a whole play that's just Francesco starting plots. Yeah. Just like being a little trendsetter, being like, 
wow, that's like Cecil. Yeah. Hate that guy. <laughs> and everyone's like, yeah. So the wild part is the mob can't make it past the first monologue. That's not even the bad part. He's just so- like, I will be a villain. And they're like, you are a villain. He hasn't even like killed a kid yet. No. He does much worse things in the play. And then we cut to the queen getting ready, and she's so excited. She's going to see Edward. And she's singing Ride a Cock Horse to Banbury Cross, which there's no proof that that nursery rhyme exists before 1700, which, like, that's not anything to do with Shakespeare, but that's just a thing. And this movie cares nothing about years, but I do, so just thought I'd mention it. So then we cut back to the globe, and Ben's starting to recognize that the mob is forming, and this was all a plan by Oxford, because Decker points out, that's the Earl of Oxford's men, and Ben Johnson recognizes Francesco. But then Francesco's being led to a trap because Ben Johnson told the tower about the play, and he's really worried about Francesco, which A, is not established no. in the movie that They've he never cares spoken. about Francesco. This is like people who ship characters who've never spoken. Yes. But the thing is, I care about Francesco. So like Ben's running and he's like, Francesco! Because he's like trying to catch up and stop him and get him out of the mob before the mob gets like to the guards. And I'm like, yeah, no, Francesco! So they're heading towards the guards, which they don't know, but we do. And then Essek gets to the court and the doors are closed behind him. And then it turns out that was also a trap and there's guns and they start firing on Essek's men. Robert's just like, mm-hmm, according to my plan. And the mob of people coming from Richard III go to the court and then they just get mowed down by a bunch of the tower's men. And this did not happen during Essex's rebellion in history. The British militia did not fire upon its own people during this time. So it's wild that this movie is even saying that this happened because this is when Francesco gets shot in the chest and dies and I'm so sad that my favorite boy is dead. And meanwhile, Oxford is like at the window waiting to see Elizabeth and he's just watching Essex and Southampton's men getting murdered and he's like, no, my son lover boy. Elizabeth is going to meet Oxford and goes, ooh, fireworks, and then looks out and says, no, not fireworks. And Robert's like, yeah, they're coming here to kill you. They're crazy. They just started firing on our people. I didn't do this. You have to go now. And so she's like, oh, but Edward, no, never mind. And then she runs off and he's like, hello, Edward. I'm here to deliver my villain speech. (laughs) And we're like, great, cool. What'd you do? And he's like, did you know? That she had a son before, named Edward de Vere. So this play is telling me Mm -hmm. that the guy who wrote Shakespeare, who Mm -hmm. really wrote Shakespeare, Mm -hmm. had sex with his own mother? Yeah. So it turns out that William Cecil wanted Oxford to marry his daughter because he was going to name Edward de Vere as heir. Because he's the son of the queen. Yes, except he never expected, and this is from the movie, he never expected that the Earl of Oxford would write poetry. And then the movie does a fucking thunderclap at poetry as though it is the worst thing a human can do. Also, like, hey, my dude, if you don't want incest, maybe tell people who they're related to. Yes, William Cecil. He's just like, and he never thought he'd sleep with his mom. It's like, okay, well. Well, why didn't you stop him from sleeping with Elizabeth and having all contact with Elizabeth? Like, there were many times when, like, you could have been like, we're going to make it so you can't be alone with him. 
instead of being like, Elizabeth is allowed to take any man to her chambers whenever she wants and there's no guards and no one cares at all. So this is where the movie truly broke me. I know what happens in the movie later, but my brain was still just reeling from this fact that is this something that Oxfordians believe? But also they wanted kids to see this movie in schools in which incest happens. I don't know. I'm terrified of the thought that this has ever been shown in a school as the history lesson. So we saw Essex and Southampton surrender. They yielded. So Essex is set to be beheaded tomorrow, and both of them are in the Tower of London. Okay, so that means that this is 1601. That's when Essex was beheaded. Okay, so now we have a date for when the end of these events happen. Yes, the end of these events. So this is 1601 now. So like, let's just say 1599 to 1601 is when the main part of the movie takes place. So it's 1601. It's snowing, and Edward's sitting there all sad outside, and Anne's like, his mother's going to kill your son and blah, blah, blah. I'm so angry because I'm a 13-year ghost. None of your poems or plays will ever carry your name. But, like, they did. Yeah, some of his poems do have his name. None of his plays survived, but, like, one, throughout his life, people knew his poems and his plays as his. Yeah. And they were celebrated by the court. And then, like, nowadays, even, we still have some of his poems. Yes. So that's super wrong. So we cut to the next scene. The queen is dying and she's weak-willed and she's... Sucking on her finger. Yes. So Robert Cecil comes to Queen Elizabeth with some documents of succession naming James as the king. And instead of signing it... She throws it at the camera and that's the end of the scene. It's very short. And then James is crowned and the queen is dead in the next scene. So now it's 1603. We've jumped to 1603. Because that's when James was crowned. And when she died. So we skipped two years? I assume we skipped two years for the last scene when she was sick and sucking her finger. But, you know, now we just have proof. And Southampton is released from the Tower of London, which, holy shit, that's that's correct. That's actually historically accurate. He was released when James became king. Yeah, because I was worried. I was also worried because they were like, he's going to die in a week. And I was like, I swear to God. <laughs> if he dies, that's really bad. And the next scene, drunken Ben Johnson yells at William Shakespeare at the Globe as a fraud. And he's so sad. And William like chokes him out. Oxford is dying. He's on his deathbed. Okay, so it's 1604 now. We jumped another year. Oh, yes, yeah, because cause... that's when he dies. 1604. Okay. And he calls for Ben Johnson and gives him the rest of his work and asks him what Ben Johnson thought of his plays because he heard a lot of clapping during the performance of William Shakespeare, but never once heard Ben Johnson clap. And he just wants to know what Ben thinks. They're the best plays I've ever heard. You're the soul of the age, Edward DeVere. I'll take it to my death. I pinky promise. And then he's giving King Lear. Which was performed like 1605, 1606. So that one tracks, right? Yeah, I guess. And (laughs) And then as Ben Johnson is leaving, he is confronted again by Anne. And she's like, what are those? And he's like, uh. And she's like, I'm a poltergeist. Tell me. So now we're back to where we were at the beginning of the movie, but not the beginning beginning. The second beginning with Ben Johnson. So... Anne told Cecil about the documents, and so that's why all of this has happened. So her ghost wrote a note to her brother. Yes, and Ben Johnson says all the plays are destroyed, and Cecil believes him for a reason. Yeah. uh, I trust this guy. This guy's on the level. I've never arrested him a bunch of times before. Let him go. 
Anyway, the globe is burned down, but that box that he put the manuscripts in, I mean, not manuscripts, because even though they call them that, those don't exist, as the Oxfordians say. So the plays, they survived. The box was fireproof, I guess. (gasps) And then we go finally, gracefully back to the play in which they talk about how everything played out. James took the throne and Ben Johnson became one of the most celebrated playwrights in his time. And he was England's first poet laureate. No, actually, he wasn't. What? Okay, so he was given money from the government for playwriting. Yeah. Which is what a poet laureate is. But that title didn't exist until 1668 and John Dryden was the first poet laureate. Okay, fuck this movie. So they're lying about everyone. Yeah, fuck this movie. And then the play and movie mercifully end. In silence. And the people just kind of stand up and leave the theater. And there's no clapping. And I'm like, correct. Like, have you ever been to modern theater and no one claps at no. the end? No. Even if it's bad, Even people bad, clap. People are like, you did it. And thankfully, we are done with this fucking movie. I'm going to sleep forever. But I guess before, what would you rate this film, Marquez? I would rate this movie 0 out of 37 plays, which are the amount that Oxford wrote. Fair. What would you rate this movie, Megan? Three good lines out of at least 28 major historical inaccuracies. Jesus Christ, Megan, are you okay? I'm better now than I was before. Or at least I will be. Now that this is done. And with that, we end our episode. Tune in next time for something better than this. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you anon. Avant Bard is created by Matthew James Marquez and Megan Charlo. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash avantbardpod. We would like to thank Riley Allen for the creation of our theme music, Cloverkin for our logo artwork, and everyone in the audience for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Avantbard, you can visit us on all social media platforms at Avantbardpod.